on this 4th of July. Um, I know there's, there might be other alternatives, though the weather changes that a little bit, but there might have been other alternatives to uh, choose, and we're glad you're here. And uh, this day, I'm sure your prayers are like mine. Lord, bless our nation, bring revival, truth, and justice to our land, and glorify your name. Uh, I'm not going to be speaking about July 4th uh, today. Um, there are some July 4ths where we do talk about what the Bible says about government and things such as that. That's a very important topic. But we are starting a new series today, uh, a summer series. So we just finished Ecclesiastes. Uh, in the fall, Lord willing, we're going to start a series in Romans, and we'll take some breaks in that series um, as uh, we go through that. No, it won't take 10 years to get through Romans. Um, We'll do, it, we'll do it in about a year, but we'll mix in some things in that. So this summer we're doing a series entitled Worshiping God Together. And we're going to take time in this series to examine what God's Word says about gathering as His people to worship Him. It's a topic that I think we can take for granted and perhaps miss some of the important things that God has for us in this area. Have you uh, ever heard the question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Anyone ever heard that? And what's the answer? Anyone want to venture the answer? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Excellent. So, yep, the way it says is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, we don't usually say a chief end. Uh, More modern English would be a chief purpose, and that's what is meant there. What is the chief purpose of man and, of course, mankind? And the answer from the Bible ultimately is the chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is what we're about. This is what we were made for. And by the way, notice that the question is in the singular, but the answer is in the plural. There are two answers that are answering a single question. The chief end, singular, right, uh, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the reason that the original writers put it that way, it's because those two things go together. To glorify God truly is to enjoy Him, and to enjoy Him truly is to glorify Him. They go together, and it's just a wonderful answer, uh, and a truthful, truthful answer. But with this is an important corollary, that the chief means, a chief means to this chief end, is the regular gathered worship of God's people. And what we're going to see in this series today, I hope, but also as we go through this, That gathering together, worshiping together as his people, worshiping God together, is a chief end to our chief, a chief means to our chief end. And we live in a day where I think in many ways we ourselves and much of the church is unsure of what Sunday worship is about. Many of us can be unsure about what we're doing. And there are all sorts of versions of Sunday worship out there. There's the high church. The church that uses more of the historical elements of a worship service. Uh, we, the, the name for those elements is called a liturgy. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, everyone has a liturgy. Everyone has a order of service. The high church uses a lot of the more ancient uh, elements. And there's a lot of pre-written responses and prayers. Sometimes there can be smells and bells and robes and so forth in the high church. Uh, but then there's the low church on the other end. Very simple worship. Uh, not so much into the ancient forms. Uh, It usually includes a a song or two, a prayer, and a sermon. It's a very simple approach. Uh, There are more recently what we call seeker services or um, 
these are services aimed at attracting non-Christians, and often the secret services, the Sunday worship is, a, is like a low church, but it feels more like a concert venue. So there's usually a, a darkened auditorium, um, a well-lit stage, maybe with lights and even smoke sometimes, with attractive props, and a talented music band, and usually a, a kind of cool and charismatic speaker. Uh, this is another form of Sundays. So there's lots out there, and I just put that before you, not necessarily to critique any of those, but to just present the reality that we live in. There's all sorts of ways of doing this, and so what should we do? If this is a, a chief means to this chief end, in other words, this is what life is about, and this is the chief way we do it, what should we do? Well, that's what we're doing in this series. We're answering that question, and we're going to God's Word, and we're going to take time to go through the different elements God's Word calls us to. And so the message today is really a start of the journey. It's an introduction to the journey, introduction to the main points about it. And what I want to do is just simply take you very quickly on a journey through the whole Bible uh, to look at this idea of the gathered worship of God by His people. And then I want to look at a little bit very quickly as well that some of the history of how that's been done. And then I just want to leave you in that with some observations and then just some prayer requests for our time. Uh, so let's pray. We're going to pray and then we'll read Revelation 4, 2 through 11, a picture of heavenly worship that will be a starting place for our journey today. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have made us to enjoy you and worship you forever. And all the ways that that uh, is designed by you and especially the privilege of gathering together with your people and your presence to worship you. We thank you, Lord. We're, we're made for this, and you rescue us from our rebellion and our wandering that we might return to you by Christ and his work on the cross to endure you and worship you forever. And Lord, one of the highest privileges we have is what we're doing right now. So we ask you, Lord, teach us about it. We want to follow you. We want to experience all that you have through this. We want you to be glorified and your people to find their joy in you and all men in and around us in this area to be drawn to you as well alongside your whole church. We ask all these things. Bless your word now. Bless the preaching, teaching, and hearing of your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation chapter 4 verses 2 through 11. This is a picture of worship in heaven and listen to what we see here. John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with a face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God's word from Revelation 4, 2 through 11. This is a picture of the eternal worship of God in heaven. Now, by the way, we had a series in Revelation some time ago, and in that we learned that this is given at the beginning of all that's going to be said for us to recognize that this is the reality that is going on regardless of what we might feel about existence, what we might feel about ourselves. God is on the throne. He's being worshipped. He's been worshipped forever. He will be worshipped forever. He's in control of all things. And so it gives us perspective for those who heard Revelation and for us today as well. This scene teaches us about worship. And the Bible has scenes and themes uh, like the ones we find here throughout the whole Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation. We learn in this, we see this here, that God calls His creation to worship Him, to be His gathered people, his, his, particularly mankind and the angels, to gather around as the whole host of God and enjoy Him and worship Him forever. He made us to worship. And there are some key things we can see in this passage about worship. Key perspectives. Notice that God is on a throne. He is on a glorious throne. It's an amazing throne. There's, there's colors and sounds. It's spectacular and, and, and awesome and overwhelming. But he's on that throne. He's ruling and reigning. He's presiding over all things. He's over all things. He is the creator over his creation. He is lifted up. He is separate from his creation. He is not the creation. And he is totally different from his creation and above it. And yet the creation is called to engage with the enjoyment and worship of God. He's on the throne. He himself and no other is on that central throne. All the, the, those around are worshiping. They're adoring him. They're enjoying him. And there's an audience there, right? Of living, thinking beings. There are the 24 elders. These either represent the leadership in the church, Old Testament, New Testament, or angelic leadership. We're not entirely sure. But they are thinking, created beings made in the image of God. And they are worshiping with their whole beings. And then there are these four seraphim, or elsewhere called cherubim, these, these mighty angels, angels of fire, angels of a sword who are there. That's what those words mean. These, these unusual, mighty, awesome angels who are themselves quite glorious, but they are day and night never ceasing to enjoy and glorify God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come, uh, who is and is to come. And whenever they say this, by the way, which is day and night, never ceasing, right? So whenever they say this, the 24 elders participate as well. They fall down before God and worship Him and they cast their crowns. The crowns that have been given them by God. 
Nevertheless, all of grace, they recognize, I'm nothing, you're everything. They cast their crowns and they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. It's all from you. It's all through you. It's all to you. It's all about you ultimately. So the worship we see here is clearly God-centered. It's adoration, thanksgiving, enjoyment. It's weighty, it's glorious, it's not casual and chaotic. There's order here, there's, there's, there's purpose here. It's, it's about the Lord, it's about enjoying worshiping the Lord. Now we could look at other places in Revelation that describe similar worship going on. But I want to use this reference point in Revelation 4, which is a paradigm, a picture, a pattern of worship in heaven that connects to really the worship we see throughout the whole Bible. Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God creates the man and the woman. And we often see this in our own mind's eye as, as you know, living in some sort of jungle context, you know, and all about nature, mankind being created in nature. And it certainly is about God creating all of creation, mankind being placed in that. But this is about worship. There are parallels in the description of this garden in Eden that parallel the temple and the tabernacle. And of course, Genesis is written by Moses for the people of God who are there before the tabernacle. And they would have seen these connections. So if you take time to go through, you'll see various connections. One, of course, they, the place that, where they are is a mountaintop garden. It's a paradise, a special garden. It's not a, a random garden, a garden like we might have. It's a king's garden. The word for it is a king's garden. It's an orderly garden. It's a garden for royalty to enjoy. And it's on top of a mountain. The temple is built on top of a mountain. The, this is also parallel to the tabernacle and temple on other levels. First, of course, God's presence dwells there. After the fall, it talks about God uh, having been with them in the cool of the day. He visits them. He dwells there with them. He's present there. And this, the word that's used for him being there present is, is connected to the word to his presence in the tabernacle in the temple. Again, they would have picked that up. Just like we get to experience in the tabernacle, Adam and Eve were experiencing there. Adam's called to keep the garden. That word for keep is a specific word that was, is used for what the priests were to do in keeping the tabernacle and the temple. So he is serving as like a priest, uh, as a worship leader there before the Lord. There's the tree of life in the garden. If you look in the tabernacle, there's the lampstand, which is fashioned in the image of a tree that brings light. The garden faces east, just as the tabernacle and temple face east. And when they fall, though they're called to enjoy worship, though they're called to fellowship with God, though they're called ultimately in their obedience and faith to eat of the tree of life, to, so to eat and enjoy Feasting with the Lord, they fall from that in their sin. And they're cast out of the garden. What does God do to put to guard the garden? The cherubim. If you look at, at later on in Exodus when it talks about the tabernacle, the curtains around the, around the whole complex, the curtains around the tabernacle have pictures of cherubim in them as they guard the Holy of Holies. And so this speaks of the reality that mankind in his fall now is not, does not have a right to come in. 
Mankind's been kicked out. We're broken in our relationship with God. And there is a prohibition guarded by these awesome, holy, glorious cherubim who understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. And they will not allow or permit us to enter in unless something is done about that. Genesis 1-3. through Connected, of course, to what we see later on. In Exodus, in the, in the Old Testament covenant, people of God, they are called to be a worshiping communi- community, rescued by God, redeemed from the world and their sin, to be in covenant with God, to, to live trusting in His grace. He's the one who's delivered them from Egypt. They're to put their faith in Him. They're to love and obey Him. They're to submit to His law. They're to gather regularly to worship God. And if you take time to look through Exodus, you'll see these different elements of their worship. God calls them to worship Him. There's a call. There's the Word of God functioning in their lives and in their worship and guiding them in all things. There's a provision of sacrifice. Now this is a new element here, of course. There has to be a way for them to come to draw near. And so God creates the tabernacle and the temple and and there are sacrifices. There are animals whose blood is shed to cover their sins. That as God considers these animals ultimately looking forward to Christ shedding His blood, He would look past their sins, looking forward to Christ through the symbolism of that animal and permit them to come in to His presence. There is God's presence there in the tabernacle and the temple. That was their their high privilege that God dwelled in in the midst of them. The camp was around that tabernacle. He dwelled in their midst. He's a God who wants to have a relationship with us. There's a covenant meal that the elders have with him. They're to feast and enjoy him. There are detailed instructions for the tabernacle and the pattern of worship in heaven. Hebrews 8. I neglected to put this on the overhead, but Hebrews 8 speaks of this. And it says, uh, speaking of these different elements, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, this place of worship, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The pattern, what's the pattern? The pattern is Revelation 4. It's what's going on in heaven. It's this eternal worship. So what goes on in heaven and these different elements that are part of that are to be what you build this tabernacle on. So there's a connection there. There's a consistency in all this in this storyline. They're given all these different particular ways to worship. And it's a part of their life if, if you just take time to read through the Pentateuch. There are regular feasts. Three times a year they have a feast where you go up to Jerusalem. Every, every adult male was required to go to the feast and to bring something to contribute. And you would go to the feast in Jerusalem and you would offer sacrifices. And certain types of those sacrifices were Thanksgiving offerings. So they would, they would uh, burn them and then you would have barbecue actually. You would eat with your friends and you would enjoy the blessings that God had given you. So you would have a meal in God's presence around that temple. There were songs of worship they were given. The book of Psalms is their, their song book. That they would have sung on their journeys to these feasts and other times. And they would have sung while they were there. And they would have sung on their way back home as well in their worship. In the temple itself, they were to engage in prayer. They were to listen to teaching. They, were to hear, they would hear musical instruments. They would be singing. They'd be the offering of psalms and, alms and sacrifices. They would encounter God himself. And so we see in all this, to be the people of God is to be called to gather together to worship God. It's inherent throughout. 
Well, that's the same situation when Jesus arrives on the scene some thousand plus years later. The same things are going on and he is himself living and enjoying those things. But he comes as the one who comes to fulfill all these different patterns. And to bring the fullness of of all the promises and all the types, all the pictures that are seen in these ways of worshiping. And he comes to actually be the temple himself. It's interesting in John chapter 2. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? As, as he was ministering and making claims. Jesus answered, destroy the temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the place where you meet God. I'm the provision for you that you can come into the Holy of Holies in my death on the cross to pay for your sins and in my victorious resurrection. Now the way is opened. I am that temple. And you come to the Father through God the Son. He says in John chapter 4 as he interacts with a Samaritan woman who was confused about how to worship in the forms, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain where he was in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and And truth, Jesus is saying, you know what? It's not about whether the temple is on your mountain or our mountain. Ultimately, there is something coming, the the fullness of through me, when those who are worshiping will worship in spirit and truth. And profoundly it says that the Father is seeking such people to worship. He is the one, throughout the whole Bible story, by the way, this is so important for us to hear, that He's the one taken the initiative. He's the one pursuing us when we had fallen away. When he comes into the garden, Adam is hiding in his sin. And he says, Adam, where are you? And he pursues Adam. And the storyline of the Bible is the Lord pursuing us in his great love and mercy so that we might have the very best thing we could ever have, which is God himself, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. He is the one seeking worshipers. And so Christ comes on the scene as God the Son to fulfill all the things, all these patterns that we see in Himself. To to be the means, the good news by which we come. The truth. When we worship Him in spirit and in truth. The truth, ultimate truth is the truth of Christ. The good news of Christ. God in the flesh. Righteous in His life. Offering up His life on the cross to pay for our sins. Rising again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And that good news is received through simple faith. There's there's nothing you need to do ultimately, but respond to the pursuit and initiative of God in your life. God wants you to be a worshiper. God wants to free you from your sin and your self-focus, your self-reliance. He wants you to look to Jesus and find in Him forgiveness and life and power to live a new life in Him 
Receiving all the forgiveness you have and living in the love of God that's yours through Christ and enjoying Him and worshiping Him forever. And He gives us the Holy Spirit so that there can be a difference. Those who worship Him, worship Him in spirit and truth. We have God the Spirit as well. So the, God the Father pursues us. God the Son comes in truth to provide for us. And God the Spirit empowers us now to believe and to follow and to enjoy. This is New Testament worship. This is what Jesus comes to do. So then we can look, again we're going on a journey here through the Bible, into the New Testament and how they worshipped in light of the fulfillment of Christ, in light of all these patterns what did they do? And, and we can look in lots of places in the New Testament and see how they worshipped. Let me just go through a few things that will help us see. Uh, looking at 1 Corinthians and some other verses, just some things to note. First, 1 Corinthians 14.40, as Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth that needed some help, he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. So their worship is to be orderly. Order is important. He says nearby in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And he says that a few times throughout this letter. In other words, guys, you in Corinth, like, you're not unique. We have ways of worshiping that all the churches practice together. There are, there are standards here. It's not every man for himself. Do whatever you want locally. We are connected to the broader church. They, uh, the New Testament church, would have shared and taught the word. We know this because, of course, there are teachers. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then, uh, then miracles, gifts of healing, and so forth. So there are those that are gifted to teach. For, uh, Ephesians 4 teaches us about the pastor teacher. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, as Paul's saying uh, what they do, he says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Each one comes with their gifts. And teaching is part of that. They're coming with a lesson. They pray as they gather. 1 Timothy 2, Paul is instructing Timothy about how worship should happen in, in the churches in Ephesus and beyond. And he says in chapter 2, verse 8, I desire that in every place... And that place not being like every place on the street, it's not precluding that, but it's every place, every worship place, that in every place that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He wants worship to include men praying. We see elsewhere in Scripture, women are praying as well, but, but prayer is to be part of worship, lifting holy hands in prayer without anger or quarreling. He wants there to be unity in worship together. They prophesied. Verse, uh, chapter 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. They sing hymns and songs. When you come together, each one has a hymn. There's to be music. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So there's to be singing. They celebrated the Lord's Supper every, uh, every Sunday. Just about as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we use 1 Corinthians 11, which instructs them on how to do it. They needed help on that. And they also shared a meal together. That was part of the problem they were having. They were hungry. And those who had food were eating their food before they shared the Lord's Supper and when others didn't have anything to eat. And so Paul's trying to say, guys, this is how we do it. We love each other. We wait. 
Um, we celebrate the supper together, regarding each other rightly, regarding the Lord's body uh, represented in the supper. And then we eat together. So, that's the journey. Back to New Testament, back to Revelation. I hope that helps you see some things and learn some things about worshiping God together. Just a few things to note. Some observations to make. I hope you can see how important gathering together to worship God is in the Bible as we journey through it. I hope you can see that it's about God. It is about us, but not first and foremost. It's about God. Well, that's kind of makes sense, but we can forget it. <laughs> and we think it's about other things. It's ultimately about God. Third, I hope you see that God is the one pursuing us. He's the one who wants true worshipers. He runs after us. He brings us the good news. And he calls us together Sunday after Sunday. Toby gets up and does a call to worship. I hope you hear behind that. This is God calling us to worship. He calls us together as part of his whole church, this local church, King of Grace Church, to worship him. I hope you can see that the content, the elements, the order, all these things are important. They're, they're, it's not do whatever you want. There's, there's some, some sort of order and instruction in the word. And the word must lead us in how we decide to worship on a Sunday. Not just our preferences, not just what we've always done, not just what we grew up with, not what the culture wants to do, but what the Word of God says to do. Certainly, we need to consider cultural aspects, but we must be driven by the Word. And most of all, I hope you can see it's our privilege and joy to gather together to worship the Lord. Nothing better than to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Very quickly now, I just want to survey so you can see, I'm probably not going to have time to cover it all, what the church has done over the centuries as the church has sought to apply the Bible to how they worshiped. There are different ways they've done that and there are lessons we can learn from this. So first, the early church, not the New Testament church, but about a century later, the second century church, had a order of service. They had two different services and this has actually been true uh, for centuries. The church had two types of service, the service of the word and the service of communion. They distinguished those. You could have them together. You might not have them together. And the service of the word would start with the greeting. We could show the little outline that we have there. Um, there was an Old Testament reading. There was a psalm that was sung uh, or chanted. There was a New Testament reading uh, that was one of the letters. Then another song. And then the gospel reading. And then a sermon. And then they would dismiss the unbaptized. So that's the service of the word. That's what they did. That's not too different, is it, than, than the common Sunday service for us today. But then they had the second part of the service. They would dismiss those that weren't believers yet, hadn't been baptized. And then they would have the service of the Eucharist, so the service of communion. And they would start with a prayer time. They had a, an extensive prayer time where the, the leader, the, 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 the local bishop, um, they had bishops at this point, uh, would, would lead in prayer. And, he, and they would pray a lot. It wasn't just like a quick two-minute prayer. He would pray and then lead the congregation basically in a topic. And then when they had kind of exhausted that, they'd go on to another topic. So this could take quite some time to pray together in corporate prayer. And then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And that had a form. The bishop would greet. The congregation would respond. There was a kiss of peace. Men to men, women to women, by the way. Um, church members would bring their, their elements of, of bread and wine. They would share that. 
there'd be some interaction and teaching uh, and prayer, and then they would take communion together. And as they, they actually, the bishop would give out the communion ind individually to people, and uh, and he would he would bless them as he gave those elements, saying saying reminding them of what was going on, saying the bread of heaven in Christ to you, and they would say amen, and then they would have a benediction and close. So that's the early church, second century. You can see similarities, of course, right? And as we look at the word and we take these elements, it's no wonder that we arrive at common points. Um, the church after that, so the the kind of the early medieval and late medieval uh, church, then the Reformed church, and, and even modern Reformed churches, all follow very similar patterns. So if you could show the next ones, I'm not going to have too much time for this. And if you can see that, you probably can't see that. Can anyone see that? Oh, good, because I can't see it. <laughs> I have it in front of me here, though. Um, so these are just, uh, in these columns are the different time periods. So there's the Roman rite, uh, before the Reformation. Um, there's Luther, Martin Luther and the Lutheran churches, what they did, then Calvin and his churches, then Westminster Confession, so the, the Presbyterians and Congregationalists from England, and then a, I think it's Sam Rayburn, which is just a modern Reformed church method, and a lot of the similar elements here. I'm just showing you that these are all very similar. And the, some of the differences would be what sort of, do you use uh, ancient liturgies, ancient prayers, ancient responses, and a lot of the high church will use more of that but the same sort of outline that we saw in the second century church is used historically in the church. And part of what we want to do in this series is actually walk through some of these elements. What does the word say about them and how should we think about them? And then what do we do? And then there's the, they, they have both the, uh, the so the, the, the next slide. And this is, um, I can make this available to you if you want to look through it in detail later. Um, if you could go to the next one. There's also, this is, the, uh, this is the service of communion as well. The upper room it's called sometimes. Um, and very similar. And they're just certain elements and changes that they make. Um, but there's a lot of uh, common elements here. And that's what I want you to see most of all, is that there's a lot of similarities. There are slight differences. Then I just want to move ahead to the Puritan church, if you could show that slide. And this is really very, a very common... Uh, the next one after that, next slide. There you go. This is the common worship service for the Puritans. This is the service of the Word, so not, not communion. Um, same sort of thing, call to worship. There was a prayer of confession. There was a, they only sung, the Puritans, uh, the early ones, only sung the Psalms. Um, and that's great if you can figure out how to do it, but the problem was they found in time it was hard to figure out how to sing it together. But anyhow, that's what they did at the time. They would sing a psalm, the Old Testament reading, sing another psalm, New Testament reading, pastoral prayer, sermon, another song, a psalm, and then a benediction. So very similar to the early church. Um, this form is common. What happens, you'll see in low churches, is that they celebrate communion monthly. They usually just add communion and maybe an extra prayer in there, an extra teaching, rather than having a more extended service. So that's a common low church approach. And that's common to us. And if you can show the next slide, I just want to point out, uh, the one after that, the contemporary worship approach. And, and there's value in this. I don't, please don't hear what I'm not saying. But this is the form that most of us are familiar with, and it's part of our history as a church. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, from charismatic and Pentecostal influences with the Jesus movement, music started to become a really important part of worship. And the emergence at the time of a worship leader became uh, very common. 
So music, uh, singing multiple songs, like four or five, and actually in the early days, I, I remember singing, we would sing for 45, 50 minutes up front. Um, lots of songs, and that was an important part of the worship service. It came from the charismatic Pentecostal Jesus movement background, the love of music, but also the desire that in that you would kind of enter in and experience the Holy Spirit ministering through the music. That was part of the value there. So uh, it w- it's called block worship, and it usually requires you know, a worship leader who, who, because that person isn't just playing music, that person is leading the worship of the entire congregation through that. And so that, the modern worship leader comes out of that. It isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I just want you to know this, what we call the worship leader, comes out of a very recent uh, practice. So usually there's a block of worship, and then you have a sermon. Maybe you put a little break in there like we do. Um, You have a sermon, and then you go back to more music. And that's how you finish, right? Anyone been a part of church where that's the the order of service, more or less? Yeah, a lot of us, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's the contemporary worship service. And there's value in that, but part of what the elders are doing as we've been journeying and thinking about these things, like we love a lot of this, but as we look at the Word and look at history, we think, well, what ought we to be doing in light of all this? We don't have any major changes in mind, by the way. We just want to be faithful. But I think it's good to be self-aware and, and aware of some of the deficiencies, perhaps, in this particular model and to think through more carefully what we want to do. That's what I want to talk about today. And here's where I want to end. Um, I most of all want us to remember that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And a chief means of that is worshiping God together. And all those things I said earlier. But I want you just to be praying for this series if you could. I want us to pray that our worship would be more and more God-saturated, God-focused full of joy and all that we have in the Lord. For all of us and for any guest who comes here, they would be aware that the, the central figure in our worship service, the one whom we're adoring and enjoying, is God, our triune God. So first, that's our greatest desire with this. Second, if you could pray, just that he would build in us faith and zeal and a pursuit of worshiping God together, that we as a whole would grow in our faith for what Sundays are about and zeal for it. We would love to be here knowing how important it is, and what a blessing it is, and we would pursue the worship of God together more fully than we ever have individually and as a whole church. Third, you can pray for wisdom because I think as we look at the Word, we're going to be like, huh, maybe we ought to switch things a little bit here. Again, I don't foresee any major changes. We made some changes recently within the past few years and celebrating communion every Sunday, right? That's the same sort of change like as we looked at the Word, like, hmm, maybe this ought to be happening every Sunday. So just for wisdom. Wisdom for all of us. And then, of course, good fruits. That there'd be fruits in our lives. That's part of how this works. Our, uh, we are built up. We grow. We learn how to be disciples. We learn how to be missionaries as we come together in the presence of God and God pours out His Spirit on us. So I leave those requests with you. I, I'll try to post some of these things so you can have access to look further. But let me, let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are pursuing us. You love us. You've sent your Son. You pour out your Spirit. You are making us worshipers. Make us, Lord, more and more worshipers, individually, but also as your gathered people. 
Teach King of Grace Church more about worshiping together. Worshiping you together. And Lord, we ask for great fruit, great zeal in our lives, wisdom, and that your name would be even more glorified and we would love you even more and we would more eagerly tell others about our great God as a result. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.